that's supposed to be some kind of sign that there's something wrong with me, that I can't stick with these organizations. But I just, in my bones, in my body, I felt the rage inside me that says, you have to get out of here. You cannot stay in this environment. It's toxic and it's not healthy for you. Welcome to Therapist Expanded, where we start a mental health revolution by living our dreams fully and freely beyond industry conditioning and taking every client with us, because we'll only take them as far as we've gone. So join me, your host, Erin Gibb, and my trailblazing guests and be revolutionary by expanding your mind and your life to your freest and fullest potential. Hello, revolutionaries. Welcome or welcome back. I'm so grateful that you're here. Today, I am interviewing fellow podcaster and group practice owner, Raina Lombardi. Raina is the host of the Creative Psychotherapist podcast. I'm very excited about this discussion. And it's really looking at the factors of what it's like to be in an agency how easy it is to blame ourselves when agencies are very difficult or unsustainable, and what it can be like to make the leap into private practice. So at the end in the show notes, you'll find a link to learn more about Raina and listen to her podcast. Also in the show notes, you'll find a link to my Monday Mind Ups weekly email list. This is a mindset-shifting, bite-sized piece of content to keep you aligned with your dreams, and to see any of the factors that might be derailing you. So I invite you to join the list. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Raina Lombardi. Okay, so Raina, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Erin. I'm really excited. Ditto. So let's start with you telling us about yourself, your work, and your passions in the field? Mm. Well, so I've been an art therapist going on um, 20 years. And I went to Lesley University in Cambridge, which really focuses on um, all of the expressive art therapies and really pulling in and diving deep with all of the different ways of expressing oneself, whether that's through movement, visual art, writing, music, um, play, um, all, all of the things. Um, and I really try to bring that um, into the work that I do with clients and uh, recognize that, you know, not every mode of expression is going to resonate. So even though I'm an art therapist, um, I do other, uh, you know, types of therapy besides art. I'm very open and flexible in that regard. And I'm a licensed mental health counselor in Florida, and uh, I have a group practice, which I started in 2015, just myself, um, and then very quickly became full and needed to bring on people. And I wasn't expecting that when it happened. Um, It was scary and um, exciting at the same time. And I've just been growing that ever since. And that kind of um, took me to uh, doing a lot of training 
four other therapists that wanted to create a private practice. And this was kind of, um, it, it started right around the time that I opened because I had so many friends that wanted to do it, but were really scared and intimidated by the process because of the risk, right? There's, there's concern that there's not going to be stability there for us um, financially and particularly for people that have families, right? That's, you, you know, you're not just responsible for yourself. You're responsible for all these other people. Um, how do you set it up so that you have sustainability and stability? Um, and I always kind of go back to this idea that, you know, working in an agency doesn't necessarily mean stability either. There's no guarantee that that's going to remain um, the way it is. I can recall one of my early jobs working at a nonprofit organization that I'm not really sure why, but they decided to cut the um, salary of master's level folks down to bachelor's level folks, which meant at the time, and this was in the mid mid 2000s, probably around 2000 and seven, uh, 2008 ish. And they cut it down to under $30,000 a year. So, um, you can imagine that's not a sustainable salary. And, and that to me was like, this isn't stable. This isn't what I signed up for. I, I need to be able to take care of myself. I need to be able to pay off my student loans. I, you know, I, I need to be able to be able to afford to go on vacation and, and to like pay for doctor's visits and all of the things that come with being an adult. And, um, and I thought, well, this isn't sustainable. And I always tell that to people, you know, if you're thinking about going into private practice and you're worried about that, the other isn't really sustainable either. And here you have more control over that stability, sustainability, the amount of energy. You have more control of your personal energy um, that you know we invest in in the work that we do. And so that led me to doing trainings, which led me to opening a consultation business. So I do consultations for other folks that. Um, are looking to create their own practice, or even if it's not their own practice, maybe it's they're looking to create an entrepreneurial um, arm off of whatever they're doing uh, that integrates their creative approach and therapy. And so we kind of work on those kind of skills. And through that, I have a podcast also. It's called The Creative Psychotherapist. And I feel really, really fortunate to be able to do it. I was terrified, absolutely terrified when I started. I think I recorded for like, I don't know, several months on and off, just record and delete, record and delete, because I didn't, that listening to my voice was so unfamiliar to me and it was very discordant. And I was like, oh, is anybody going to want to listen to my voice? Like I'm finding it so annoying. Who's going to want to listen? And, um, but I pushed through that and, um, and I love it because I get to talk with people 
that are doing amazing things, inspiring things, and they're doing a combination. Like they're they're giving of themselves to make a difference in the world, but they're doing it on their own terms through their unique uh, voice, their unique vision. And I just love that. I love hearing those stories and learning about how other therapists are marching forward in their own way. Wow. Raina, you just described yourself from my perspective, someone who's <laughs> doing this, yeah, their own way with passion, integrity, and just this making your, your own way. I really resonated with everything you said about the differences between working in an agency and building your own practice, even if it's an arm, as you called it, mm-hmm. having that freedom and having the ability to take care of yourself, making your own schedule. I think it's highly underrated how yeah, yeah it's highly underrated what you can do and you start to learn and adapt and you have that freedom and that flexibility to go, Yep, I just created uh, another schedule didn't work so well, but I can change that very quickly. Yes. And, wow, just hearing your story about how they had the power in that agency to just cut your salary, that's quite astounding. And mm-hmm. it speaks to I think the trend in what some might call the great resignation that was recently occurring, but I think it's the, you know, the seeds were planted a long time ago in mental health in agencies where people resign. There's such a turnover for, I think, these reasons. Can't yeah. take care of yourself. It, yeah. It's so unsustainable. So, you know, we have this adage within the profession, which really makes me sick, which mm-hmm. is you didn't get in this for the money. And I really believe wholeheartedly that we have to stomp that out. We cannot perpetuate that anymore because what that's doing is within agency work, that means that insurance companies, at least in the United States, they determine what is an allowable reimbursable rate for us. And it's, it's terrible. The rates haven't changed in 15 years, you know, for the most part. Um, I can't speak before that. I haven't done any further investigation, but, um, you know, and in some cases they've been decreasing rates. They decreased rates in, in some situations before COVID. And so that means that people have to do an unsustainable amount of face-to-face therapy work. And if you're working in a community mental health agency, you're working with individuals who are experiencing some of the most challenging, painful um, struggles of human existence. And we're taking those stories on and there's an emotional energy toll, right? Money is about an exchange of energy. And I have only so much emotional energy to be able to effectively provide a holding environment for the people that I'm working with. And once that energy reserve is gone, my ability to really be fully present 
is not going to be there because I'm going to be tired. I'm probably going to be hungry because I didn't have time to take a break to eat something and sustain myself. Maybe I didn't get to drink enough water because I knew I wasn't going to be able to take a break to use the restroom. Um, I probably was forced to take on, you know, at least seven or eight hours of face-to-face therapy work in the workday in order to meet the, um, you know, the billable requirements um, for the week. Because if somebody cancels, I have to make that up somehow. And, um, and it creates this just pressure cooker environment where, um, of course, people resign. Of course mm-hmm. they do because they're not being supported when they aren't able to perform up to these unrealistic standards. Then what do they do? They, they take that on. They're like, well, there must be something wrong with me because these other people are able to do it. And, one of the things that I love to do is supervision and, and I often supervise outside of my practice where I supervise people that are working in these other um, environments. And we talk about how this is not an issue with you. This is an issue with the system and the system has to change in order to provide better care and produce better outcomes for the clients that it's just we need a fundamental rollback and complete reorganization of the way we're doing. It's not sustainable. In private practice, you get to determine, okay, you know what? I know that this is going on in my life right now. The max amount of people I can see in a given day is three. Or I know that I have something going on and I I only want to dedicate two days, but in those two days, I'm going to be fully present for those folks because I know those are the only two days I'm going to see clients and the rest of the week, I'm going to have time to focus on some of the administrative tasks, but plenty of time for self-care or, you know, what time with family, whatever you, you know, have you, um, that really isn't, um, allotted in, you know, agency work. No, You said something so important there about one of the early phases, I think, for anyone who's considering leaving those jobs or really shifting or maybe taking on an arm into private or leaving altogether into private is that human tendency to blame oneself when things are going really poorly. I don't know how else to put it. When when the stress becomes overwhelming, our brains really simplify and say, well, I am the reason. And we see this throughout the people we work with. We, we make right. it about I, whether we're little kids or we're adults. And I've seen that in myself. When I worked in agency in the Arctic, it was very difficult. And that was the first thing I did for probably a year was think, how can I make myself the square peg mm. or the round peg, right? And when I first started supervising, now I supervise, <clears throat> excuse me, exclusively people within my practice, my group practice that I co-own. But at the time when I started, I owned a private practice and I had a therapist who worked part-time. She had an arm, as you say, in the private practice world. And then she did agency work full-time. And I remember as a therapist, 
empathizing so much. And as a supervisor, sitting back and wondering, because what I wanted to stand on the rooftop and yell was, this is not you. But of course, as a supervisor, I had to wonder, reflect, mirror, and wait for her to get there. And it Mm -hmm. took a long time for her to realize that it didn't matter how much she tried to morph. It wasn't her. It was that the constant crisis calls, the standoffs, oh, the hospital, like she had a really high crisis position. It was that. It was unsustainable and it didn't matter what everyone else was doing. She had the goal to stay well. And so that was what was different was that maybe people around her didn't know yet what it meant to stay well or in some other way they were coping. But when she looked back at it, she thought, but I don't think anyone's really thriving. But it took time. And I've been so blessed to watch this person's journey who has now lives in Europe and is Mm. doing multiple degrees there and loves it and still works for our organization remotely in Canada. Fantastic. Yeah. It was so beautiful to watch, but I've seen it time after time supporting people who are coming out of agencies that that is the really important thing to understand is that first step is to think it's us. Mm -hmm. Anyone listening that's in an agency thinking that why can't I do this? Why am I so stressed and unfulfilled? Um, It's the unsustainability. I would agree with you completely, Raina. It is the structure of these organizations. I I think so too. And I, I feel the same. I feel like I went through that journey myself early on and I was wondering, why can't I keep a position for more than a year or two? And I thought, this is, this is weird, right? Like that's supposed to be, you know, some kind of sign that there's something wrong with me that Mm -hmm. I can't stick with these organizations. Um, But I just, in my bones, in my body, I felt the rage inside me that says, you have to get out of here. You cannot stay in this environment. It's toxic and it's not healthy for you. Yes. I remember that feeling and people kind of thought I was, uh, had lost it for lack of a better word, because we packed up our family, myself, my husband, my daughter, who was five at the time and our cat and everything we owned in a U-Haul with towing cars. And we drove from the Northwest Territories of Canada to Southern Ontario. And it was a 51 hour drive. And yeah, it was. And we had no jobs. And we left this very cushy kind of what I would call a golden handcuffs job in uh, for the government. That's where I was working, doing, you know, in an agency. And actually, we were paid really, really well. But it didn't, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. It was the kind of trauma I hadn't been exposed to. And I was I had been exposed to my own traumas here and to working in mental health here. But, you know, the Arctic is a very difficult place with much intergenerational trauma. And where I was living, even pre-colonialism, there was a slave trade there. And so the people had this long lineage of so much trauma. And it was such a beautiful experience in many ways. I would never change a thing 
and I've grown to deeply respect our indigenous culture and Mm -hmm. see that there's so much hope, but the system just wasn't ready, I think, for how much people need. So people thought we were nuts, but I felt that rage, as you say, like that fiery, like nothing will stop me now. Once I got through that initial hump of that, this must be me. It was sort of like a really bad breakup. It was like, oh, this isn't me. It's you. I got to get out of here. I'll do anything to get out of here. And I resonate with what you said earlier, which was with that fire and that passion, and it turned into joy. I filled my practice in four months and was not expecting that. I was like, I really thought it would be um, a lot of focus on filling. And once that happened, I thought, oh, this is a different side of that coin. Now what do I do with people? So yeah, that eventually grew into group practice. So I could really resonate with everything you're saying right now. Yeah. I I think there's so many of us that have very similar stories. I've talked with some therapists. They don't have those stories. I think they, you know, they were fortunate to where they landed. Um, yes. My first year out, my first year out of uh, grad school, I was in a phenomenal place in Massachusetts. And that particular, it was my second year internship, which turned into my first job. That job, I think, spoiled me for what I thought the field was going to be because it was such a phenomenal um, experience. We worked with very, very um, challenging children that had complex neurodevelopmental uh, needs and um, and it was in a school environment, but there was so much support built in for the folks that were providing the education and therapy. Therapy came first. Um, it was very focused on the relational dynamics um, and attachment. And so that kind of rolled into the way the whole system was modeled so that it wasn't just this space to hold and care for the clients. There was the recognition that the individuals that are doing this work, which could be very, very difficult. Some days I would go home and I, I'm not a napper, but I would go home and I would just take a 30 minute nap because I needed that time to recharge because I would be so exhausted but they recognized that the staff also needed that same level of support and created that. And so when I went out into the agency and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to have, you know, supervision and we're going to have regular meetings. And, and then it was like, a lot of times that was disregarded and you're kind of floating around on your own with all of these heavy expectations and questions as to like, well, you're not, you're not making productivity. Um, <laughs> it, it felt like very jarring. I was like, oh, this is, this is not what I'm expecting at all. Um, and that was partially, I think, because I moved to Florida and in the, the United States, 
we rank somewhere in the realm of like 45th to 47th in the country for like the lowest amount of money per capita that goes towards mental health. So we have really, really um, overburdened uh, mental health systems here that can't really take care of um, all of the needs that are here. Well, that might be an excellent segue then into a question I have for you, which is what does mental health revolution mean to you? That's such an amazing question. I think it means that we have to advocate for change and the way in which we can do that and accomplish it, I think is by striking out on our own and creating it in the, in the vision that we believe it needs to be, which means that it is sustainable for the providers, because if it's not sustainable for the providers, then they're not going to be effective in their job. And it's going to create, you know, ethical challenges. Um, but if somebody is really cared for, somebody's really doing work with clients that they feel they do an excellent job at helping, um, when we can set up those kinds of systems, we can start to revolutionize the way um, we approach the field. I think we have to get out of this other model of, you know, um, well, you're here and this is the clients that we have. So you have to serve the client, even though you have no idea what you're doing. Yes. Um, you know, but, but we have to go out there and, and do it ourselves. I also think that, um, as a supervisor and choosing to supervise folks outside of my agency, because I believe that they're not, not always, sometimes they're not, they're not getting adequate supervision from within. Um, because again, those supervisors are also in that system and they're pressured and they're, you know, they're not thriving either. They're Mm -hmm. overburdened. And, um, you know, so it creates that cycle. We have to model what we have to be models for what we want it to be. So in that working with those folks, I feel like part of the supervisory practice is really um, having, allowing space to hear their concerns about what they're experiencing and witnessing in the settings, but then working with them um, to effectively communicate through the systemic chains of command on how to address this. Um, Because if we don't address it and if people don't say anything, well, then it stays the same. I know there's a lot of pressure and fear that exists for sticking up and saying something. And sometimes that might mean that you're not liked anymore. You're not preferred within the system. But um, that's probably okay too, um, because there are other options to go. But if we don't say anything, then we just allow the same cycles to repeat. Um, in some ways, I like I almost feel like um, some 
settings that I've worked in really like mirror trauma, dysfunctional family dynamics. Yeah. The way they're designed, very shame driven, uh, which is always shocking to me as a therapist. I think that's something that we have to eliminate. We can't lead through shame and fear. We can't lead through competition. There is no competition in the work that we do. I have a practice. You have a practice. That's okay. We can collaborate. We're not in competition. There's more than enough people that need to be assisted and that that need services. There's no need for that kind of uh, competitive stuff to be occurring within our field. Um, And we have to eliminate shaming people for charging a rate that you're not comfortable charging whether that's higher or lower. Um, mm. I see a lot of, of shame thrown around for therapists that are advocating to raise fees or that are charging high fees. Um, however, we don't know what their circumstances are. We don't know where they're living. We don't know if they're a single mom who's recovering from cancer and has thousands of dollars of medical debt that that she has to pay off plus she's raising kids. Yeah. And we don't know what people's situations are to say you're doing a disservice to the clients that really need help because you're creating inaccessibility because of your fees. No, that's unacceptable. And that's not a revolutionary way of, of viewing the work that we do. Um, I, I think we have to stop shaming people for charging and recognize that that's part of the way we have to change the system is to say, no, this is a highly specialized, highly educated, skilled group of people who've worked and dedicated probably a decade, at least a solid decade of intense education in order to provide the services that they provide. And it's unacceptable to say that, well, you know, you should, you should still be charging a fee that makes it accessible to all in need. Well, by charging fees that are commensurate with our um, educational uh, experience and training skills, you know, all of that, When we do that, we substantiate that this is something of value. This is something of value. People don't value things that they don't have to pay for. I couldn't agree more with everything that you've said. I'm just sitting here shaking my head so much because yes, oh yes. Uh, I knew uh, when you reached out, and everything I read in our correspondence, I was like doing the same thing while rewriting <laughs> to you, shaking my head like, yes, like I felt like just writing back, yes, exclamation point, exclamation point. So I feel aligned with what you're saying so fully. Yeah. And this message needs to reach our field. To me, it's the purpose of this podcast is to help people understand that a mental health revolution starts with therapists living our dreams and desires. Because 
we lift ourselves up and then we take our clients so much further by just even the, you know, I think of the vibrational universe, the physics principle, the spiritual principle, however you want to look at it, we are vibrating at a certain frequency. And when we change that frequency, it absolutely affects everyone around us. And people may think that's woo-woo, but be in a bad mood and walk around your animals. They will absolutely respond. And that's fine. We all get in bad moods. But walk into a room where everyone has their back to you and you can sense like, ooh, tension in here or people are excited and happy. So when we live our dreams, something happens on many, many levels. We change the field. Yes. We do better work. We feel different. And we can honor all of that by charging a fee that is sustainable. And that isn't based on what we think our human value is. Because I heard you saying that that's an important piece that setting a fee is not, are you good enough? Right. It is about when I'm helping supervisees who are moving from being a student into being, you know, a contractor, if they want to stay on with us, then they become a contractor. They set their own fees. I'm just there to reflect and assist them and encourage them generally to raise them, if I'm honest, because I can hear their thought process. And I think we've all been there starting out. It's a lot about what are other people doing and what's my value? What do I know? And it's kind of like, okay, you could do it that way. It's perfectly fine. There's no judgment. There's no shame. So some people set their fee far lower than I would. Okay. And that's fine. But what I recommend is look at your life, look at the costs of your life, and then look at what it would cost to thrive, you know, have retirement savings, go on vacation, do all those things, and then reverse engineer it. How many hours would you need? And it's fascinating. My cat wants to really tell us what he thinks. He agrees, I think. But it's fascinating how that changes things. I think that that, because you were saying uh, the same themes about how we can change the field by changing how we live our lives and speaking up and facing fear, because I think that that is truly the next step. So the first step I've seen with supervising and with being in, in myself is first we blame ourselves. And then once we realize, oh no, this is the environment around me, this is the system, and now I'm afraid of being shamed, I'm afraid of what it would take to leave this, of speaking up. So we've all been there in one way or another in our lives. So I wonder, when have you held yourself back from fully living a dream or desire? Gosh, I feel like so, so many times. The way I kind of view life is that um, we're all on a perpetual journey of becoming and that that becoming doesn't stop. So I might get to a place where other people look and they think, oh, wow, you're very accomplished and you have a lot going on. And I am still in that. I'm, I'm still in that place of, well, there's more that I want to become there's more that i want to create and so i'm 
constantly facing that, you know, that, that, um, that risk of starting something new and, and being held back from, from doing that. So we could go all the way back from when I was in high school, um, as a, as a great student, uh, really smart kid. And, um, but I didn't test take well. Um, I definitely had a lot of test taking anxiety, um, at the time. And I remember, um, you know, it was like senior year, whatever. And we had to do like SATs, um, those college tests before I was so paralyzed by anxiety that I never left my bedroom that day to get up and take myself to the test. I couldn't do it. I was petrified and I was frozen and I never left the room. And, um, and so then that dictated the smallness of how I would play in those early years of my life of like, I can't, I can't take the SAT because I just couldn't do it. I could do it, but you know, I was holding myself back at the time, things I know now, but because of that, that really dictated where I could go to school and like my early path, you know, higher education. And it took me a long time to work through that and overcome that. Now I don't have test-taking anxiety and thank goodness, because when I took my board certification exam for um, being an art therapist, I didn't know it at the time, but I had the norovirus, which is like that cruise ship virus. Uh, um, I had gotten it at a fundraiser and for my work at the time, we had a big fundraising event. And the only reason I found out was the health department called me and was like, you know, have you had these symptoms where, you know, were you at this event? And I was like, oh my gosh, how did you know? But I was so ill while taking the exam. Um, but I was still able to like manage everything, get it done, pass, no problem. And then when I was taking my LMHC exam, which was computerized. The other one was paper pencil, um, but the LMHC exam was computerized. The blue screen of death appeared mid-exam. The, the computer just went, Psh. and I was like, oh my gosh, everything's lost. What's going to happen? I started to freak out. And I was like, nope, don't panic. Everything's fine. We'll go out to the proctor and tell them what happened. They'll figure it out. It'll be okay. And they were able to reset it. I had to repeat a couple of questions that I'd already completed and then finish it. And I passed the test, no problem. But I think about that, like my 17-year-old self, how my 17-year-old self would have handled that would have been completely different. Like that would have been shattering to me. I don't, I don't know if I would have been able to recover it at that time. So I feel like. I've held myself back um, many times and I'm on a mission not to do that. I now embrace that I'm going to feel my fear. I'm going to root down in my fear. I'm going to befriend my fear and I'm going to take action anyway. I'm going to do the things that scare me anyway. Going out into private practice um, was definitely one of them. 
Um, before that, I had an art studio and was selling my art. And that was also scary. And I held yeah. myself back from doing that for a while. So I feel like it's um it's a repetitive theme and I don't foresee that it goes away. I think it's something that we learn to embrace. If we can learn to embrace it, then we then it becomes like, oh, it's you again. I know you. I'm I recognize you. You're helping me to get to this like next elevated level um in my life. And I really don't have to be afraid. Oh, bingo. Yeah, you've talked about both sides of the coin, which I think for us humans is when something's really on our growing edge, we first feel that, uh oh, I have to stop now. This is too scary. We run into whatever's holding us back, but that becomes with age and practice and wisdom, what you said, which is a tip off of like, ooh, there you are. I have this image that it's fear handing me a parachute. It's Mm. like, it needs me to take the parachute or it's telling me. And so I can jump off the cliff, but it didn't always feel that way. I agree. Uh, There was a lot of times in my life as well, where it was like, well, this is where I stop. Okay. And I'll just back away and hope the fear kind of decreases as I move away from the edge. But you answered the question, I think, which is the other side of the coin. When have you taken a risk? You kind of said how they go hand in hand. When we're about to take a risk, we feel that fear. Mm-hmm. And it is an indicator that we're at that growing edge, in my experience, that it's just a new frontier for us. It becomes a friend. And yeah, at times in our life, it becomes paralyzing. And then mm-hmm. we grow. We realize what it really is, just just somewhere we haven't been before. Right. I. I feel like in many ways, it's like, it's trying to, it's trying to dim our light from shining because when we shine, you know, like you were saying, there's a ripple effect that our shine impacts those around us, but it, but our shine could also dim somebody else's light Mm. and that we care about. And, and that can feel really scary too. Um, you know, if, what does this mean for the other people in my life? Well, that is the, that is the mantra in our society. I think, especially as women, I have a coach who says it's the codependent mantra and it makes Mm -hmm. me laugh because, but it's how we've been socialized, right? That if I become my fullest realization of me, as I know it now, as I feel that growing edge, then what, who will it harm? Will me shifting harm all my clients? Will it? And the thing I've realized is it's the feeling, it's the same. It's that other appearance of fear. It's just wearing a new outfit and telling us, ooh, yeah, you're going to hurt people. When in reality, the revolution that I see is we see that just like all other fears and go, oh, thank you so much. And yet, actually, I'm going to help everyone around me by modeling that. You're not hurting anyone by going after who you are, even if people in the short term tell you you are. That's okay. That's right. They can. That's for that's for them to deal with, right? That's their yes. emotional. That's their yeah. emotional work, not exactly. our emotional work. <laughs> but it's tr- it is so deeply ingrained in us, 
what I love that you put it out there because yes, as we start to shine, it's like, who's going to get harmed by this? And I think when you go, okay, no one, maybe in the short term, those are their feelings. What I've learned to ask myself is what's worth being criticized for? That's such a great question. Thank you. I love it. I, I learned that one and I thought, ooh, what I use that now is to differentiate between what's heart centered for me and what's ego centered. Because when something, they can both feel so jazzy, like so exciting. But when something's heart centered and truly my purpose, I don't care who's going to criticize me. It's a deeper need and mission and it's for the world. Whereas it's totally cool that I have egoic stuff. Who doesn't that I have all these egoic goals, but those are not worth being criticized for because they come from ego and ego just wants to be like, I'll just be hiding. So no, nothing's worth being criticized for. It really helps me sort. And then because I'm an idea, I have a million ideas. Ooh, I could, uh, I could drive a car on ideas. It feels like fuel. So I need to find a way to discern what mm-hmm. am I willing to put into the world that I can be fully criticized for, but I'm going to do it anyway. I love that. That is such wonderful advice. And I am going to write that down and I'm going to use that myself um, because I struggle with that too. Mm -hmm. Um, With the ideas part, I I think that's just having a creative mind of like, once you see something that's really exciting and you're like, oh my gosh, that's a missing piece of a puzzle. And that would like help, help this or that you're excited to put that energy there, but then you're like, okay, but if I put my energy there, I don't have energy for this over here. So I really have to discriminate where am I putting my energy, which kind of goes back to that earlier thing Mm -hmm. of it's okay for therapists not to put all of their emotional energy in their work. Because when we do that, we don't have enough for ourselves and the people in our lives. Yes. I am so very grateful, Raina, to have you on the podcast. And I'd love to ask you now about where people can find you, anything you'd like to let the audience know about. Sure. Yeah. People can find me um, either at my practice, which is floridaarttherapieservices.com. That's my group practice. And we offer um, some CE trainings on different topics. And um, of course, lots of therapists in the practice providing experiential based um, therapy. And then um, through my consultation business, which is creativeclinicianscorner.com. And you can find the Creative Psychotherapist podcast on there um, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And um, I always interview lots of really, really interesting people doing really amazing things. So if you're a podcast listener, um, I'd love, I'd love for you to check it out. Oh, thank you so much, Raina. This has been wonderful. I agree. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to talk about this particular topic, which I think is sensitive and important and just doesn't get enough attention. Thanks for listening to Therapist Expanded. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast to help more of our colleagues join the revolution.